as we continue in our study of the book of Acts, just a reminder about you know, what we're doing here and, and, and the theme that this is about becoming his church. And that this should be really the goal of, of every church. Every church, you know, whatever we try to put together strategies and plans, um, any book that is out there, any program that's out there about church growth or anything like that, those are all great. Those are all fine. Well, I say all. Most of them are okay and good. But if they are not first and foremost focused on being his church, then it's really not something I'm that interested in. We want to be his church. And to be his church, then we all want to be his. And, and, and it, we want to be here, not because, you know, we like the music, or not because the pews are softer here. Um, you know, we don't serve coffee, but if we had coffee, we'd have better coffee. It's not because we have a great, you know, children's ministry or great young adults or senior adults or any of that. It's not because of that. It's because we want to be his church. And going through the book of Acts, that's what we're looking at. People come to church for so many different reasons, and that's fine. You, whatever brought you here got you here. But what, what we want you to, 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 to know is that what we want is that if God is leading you to be part of a church that's devoted to God's word, that's devoted not just to studying it, but to living it out and accepting whatever that means, that, that this, that's our goal. That's why we're here. If you're looking for the cool church, if John's preaching, we're the cool church. If I'm preaching, you know, I'm here with me, right? We're not look for the, the young church or the mature church. Whatever people God brings together, we our utmost goal is to be his church. So I've loved doing this study because we're not just looking at the history of the first church. We're gaining important principles about being his church. Let's look at Acts chapter 17, verses one through nine. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So, you know, sometimes you get used to these stories, and, and when, you, when you get used to stories, sometimes you kind of check out. You know, it's like, oh, Paul, go to another city. Oh, Paul went to the synagogue. Oh, Paul preached. Oh, people responded. Oh, people persecuted. And we, we kind of check out. But one of the things that we should look at when we have similar stories is not just how they're similar, that tells us something, but also how they're different. What's different about each one of these stories? You know, we talk about Paul, and we talk about Paul being, like, in some ways, probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. And by that, we might even say the most successful Christian. But what do we mean by that? You know, when we talk about being his church, one of the things that kind of comes into play is, what does it mean to be his church and have success? What is success? And you see Paul going from city to city and you could equally make the case that he's having success or he's not having success. Uh, sometimes the numbers are there but more often than not, Paul's leaving the city because he's being persecuted. What is success? Well, one of the problems I think that has plagued the church is the church has adopted this idea from the world that success is largely based on numbers. Success is largely based on numbers. Now, I can't guarantee you that I will preach this sermon if our church ever had 10,000 people. I will tell you I, I, I would do my best. I would never think that because we have 1,000 people, 5,000, 10,000 people, that we are successful. But unfortunately, that has become the measure of success. There's very few pastors of churches of under 500 that you know the name of. But there's a lot of pastors of churches of 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 that you know the name. And I'm not saying those churches are not successful. I'm just saying that what we're basing the success of that church on is purely looking at the numbers. If, if somebody asked me, is such and such a church a successful church? My honest response would be, I don't know. I would want to go spend time in that church. I would, I would want to find out, you know, what's being taught. I'd want to find out how community is being experienced and lived. There's so many things that I would want to look at before I'd ever say, yeah, that church is successful. By the same token, if, if there's like, you know, 13 people meeting somewhere, and somebody asked me, is that church successful? It's the same thing. Small doesn't mean successful either. It's not based on numbers. But we can't help it. You know, and I think, you know, I talked to pastors. I went to one of my former students who was 
you know, installed as a pastor at UABC. And so I talk to younger pastors, and I think some of that's kind of breaking down, that idea of numbers. But I, I remember when I was growing up, you know, a lot of you know my dad was a pastor, and, and you know, he would get together with all his pastor friends, and, and you know, we were there, and we would hear them talking. And it was always about numbers. It was always about how many baptisms, how many, you know, how big is your worship service, how many buildings do you have? And I, th- I don't know that I remember this ever happening, but had somebody said, you know, we haven't grown in numbers at all, but let me tell you about Joe and what God did in Joe's life. Let me tell you about Beth and how she's overcome through the, through the power of the Spirit. When, when that would happen, I, I almost have the feeling that people would be like, oh, so you don't have any real success to share. You know, I don't know that any of you have ever had to endure a blind date. By the way, if, if that's how you, you met and you're married to your blind date, great for you. But a lot of times if you ask the person to tell you something about the blind date, the kiss of death was, he has a great personality, right? She has a great personality. I don't want to talk about all the other things, just focus on the personality. And it's almost like that's how a lot of, and I'm talking about pastors feel. They feel like, oh, oh, okay, we'll pray for you. Why are you praying for me? God is moving in my church. Lives are being transformed. They're growing. Don't feel sorry for me. But that's what the world does. And let me make sure you understand. I'm not the kind of person who says you should ignore numbers either. There's something about church that we are called to to gather together. We're called to reach people. We can't ignore numbers but we shouldn't let numbers drive what we do and who we are. I've been here seven plus years now. I can say that now. First, first week in August was seven years. Seven plus years here. Let me tell you, those of you who were here back then, this was my expectation. My expectation was when I came here and if, when I started preaching and teaching and leading the way that I felt God was, was leading me to do it, I felt our numbers would cut in half. That's what I thought. I didn't have in mind who the half would be. Like, those Galatians, they're not sticking around. No, it wasn't that kind of a thing. I didn't know who it was, but I just felt in general that there's people that were so used to doing things a certain way that they're not they're, they're not gonna. They're not gonna stay. But it didn't matter to me, and it still doesn't matter to me. What we want to be, you know, John and I talk about this all the time. We want to be people of God's word, and if that means the numbers are not there, the numbers aren't there. If the numbers are there, great, more of a challenge. So if 
God's definition of success isn't about numbers. What we've seen in the book of Acts is, what is his definition of success? What does it look like? Really, what does it mean to be his church? And we've seen this. His definition of success, first and foremost, faithfully follow the word of God. Faithfully follow the word of God. Denomination after denomination, they're, they're dividing. And by the way, Baptists were among them. But they're dividing over, are we people of the word of God? Is the, is the word of God where we're gonna focus the authority in our lives? Or is it one of many authorities, an important one, make no doubt. In fact, it might even be the most important one. But we're also gonna have a lot of other authorities speak into what we think is truth. No, we faithfully follow his word. And that's what we've seen in the book of Acts. We share the gospel. You know, the phrase, I don't think is a perfect phrase, but it's a phrase that I have right now. We have a gospel-sharing attitude that's just always there. And it doesn't, by gospel-sharing, it doesn't mean that we're always laying out the plan of salvation for people. Sometimes it means that. But it's always with an idea of how do I present the gospel to this person so, so that they can, they can hear? And maybe that situation doesn't allow for it, but, but you're like, you're always thinking like, you know, maybe I'll, you know, we can invite them to come to Bible study, invite them to church, you know, find another time we can sit down and talk. But a gospel sharing attitude and then a community that's marked by unity and love. You know, John challenged us. I'm glad John's here because we don't have to play good cop, bad cop, um, but sometimes we do. You know, John challenged us, you know, a couple weeks ago about, about our relationships to one another. How close are we? And really, the bigger question is, how close do we even want to be? Part of our witness to the world is our unity with each other, the love we have for each other. It's one of the greatest evidences of the change of the gospel. And if it's scary to you, it's supposed to be scary. We just started a cross country first meet on Friday, it was just a practice meet, but I tell the, 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 I tell the runners what I tell them every year and I tell them repeatedly throughout the year, it's supposed to hurt. If it's not hurting, you're not racing. You're just out for a jog. Well, being a community of faith, so in love with God, so in love with each other, it's supposed to be unusual and strange, awkward. It's not what we're used to because if it's what we were used to, we wouldn't have to like have Christ in our lives. We could just do it as human beings. So if you think that, and that's what's holding you back, just understand it's supposed to be that way. That's why we know when it happens, it is the incredible work of God and not what, what I just want or what I find comfortable. I want to be his church. Church that has this, this strong community towards 
each other that's united by his spirit, but also has, has a mind to reach the world, to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I love about Paul is we see that so exemplified in his life. And this text that we're looking at, if you remember, this is, he's not where he planned to be. He planned to go back over the first missionary journey. He planned, you know, he had all this plan about, you know, hey Barnabas, you and I, let's go back to all the churches we ministered to before. And you know, they, they need our help. And it makes sense. That's the plan I would have had. But first of all, plans kind of go south when Barnabas wants to bring John Mark and Paul doesn't. Now all of a sudden, they split up into two groups. Barnabas literally goes south. He goes to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas and goes north. And at first, everything seems to be going according to plan, until we read, as we did a couple weeks ago, Holy Spirit won't let Paul minister where he wants to minister. And finally, there's this vision, this man saying, you need to come to Macedonia. And all of a sudden, Paul is nowhere he expected to be. He's on another continent. I am thoroughly convinced that nowhere in Paul's brain on when he was getting ready for that second missionary journey, was he planning to go to Europe? It wasn't in his brain. But that's where God wanted him to be. But I want you to notice something very important about Paul. Paul wasn't sitting around waiting for God to give him direction. He wasn't gonna say, you know, till God says something, I'm just gonna you know, go make tents. I like making tents. It's good money. You know, I'll minister in the local church, but I'm just going to make tents. No, I'm sure when they decided to go on the second missionary journey that there was tons of thought, tons of prayer, seeking God's direction. But for whatever reason, they didn't really know what the direction was. But they were always looking, always thinking, about how they could minister. And when God said, redirect, guess what? If Paul was like me, and maybe like you, I'm not sure, but if Paul was like me, who had spent all this time planning stuff, you know, he probably had, he or his assistants called ahead, had hotel reservations, you know, no, no they didn't have hotels. But, but you know, he, he probably had all this plan that's coming along and God is saying, no, go this way. If Paul is like me, it's like, that can't be God. Or he wants me to do that after I finish my plan, right? Because I spent so much time on this plan and I know this plan is right. But I said, Paul is going and doing something that doesn't really make sense to him. Before he's even established this first work, he's going on, he's going to Europe. And he doesn't just take that one little trip to Philippi. He stays in Europe. And so he ends up in Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is the second largest city in, in, uh, in 
Greece, and, and, and it's, it has this, this obviously larger Jewish popula population because remember, in Philippi, there was no synagogue. Here, there's a synagogue. In Philippi, Paul had to adapt. Here, Paul can go, all right, let's go. This is what, I, this is what we do, we go to the synagogue. So he goes. So when we, when we go back to this text and, and we, we look at, you know, what is this, you know, what is this text telling us? What is God trying to say through this text? Why does Luke tell this story the way he tells us? Why does he tell us about Paul and, and give us, um, you know, the details he give us, gives us? And, you know, one of the things that's, that kind of stands out that's different is what we see in verse 2 where it says, and Paul went in, as was his custom. So he went into synagogue, as was his custom. We've heard this before. But then it says, three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Luke is, is intentionally bringing this, this out. It's not that Paul hadn't done this before. It's not that when we even saw some of Peter's sermons that we didn't see this before. But he's intentionally bringing this out in this text it's almost like this, this reminder that wherever you go, if you want to have successful ministry, it is about the gospel. It is about God's word. And it's not just teaching it, but it's knowing it, it's living it, it's sharing it. If I were to think, you know, what is a successful church or what does a successful church do? You know, a successful church can do a lot of things, but the main things it needs to do, the core things it cannot, that it cannot abandon is that we are focused on knowing God's word, we're focused on living God's word, and we're focused on sharing God's word. I love that so many of you are so in love with God's word that, that you're at multiple Bible studies during the week. You're not just here. But you're at multiple Bible studies. If you remember, you know, one of the signs I say that, that a successful sermon has been received by you, you've received it successfully, is that you leave this place hungry to know God more. Not full. Hungry to know it more, to, to, to know God more. And I love that. And those of you who, who haven't connected with our Bible studies you know, come talk to us. They're advertised, you know, on our website, in the bulletin, our newsletter, everything. Come talk to us. But it's not just knowing the word. It's also living the word. We don't want to be pointed out the way Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees of being hypocrites. People who know the word but don't live it. People who can sing about love and talk about love but don't love. It's living the word, but it's also, again, having that gospel-sharing attitude. There is no success, no success. There's no definition of success from God's perspective from a church that abandons the word of God. None. I might even modify that by, instead of saying abandons, demotes, denigrates the word of God, even by a little. 
One of the great statements of, of the Protestant Reformation is the, the statement of sola scriptura, that it is the Bible that is the authority for our lives. It needs to be rightly interpreted. It needs to be rightly stood and um, studied and understood. But make no mistake, we cannot be a successful church if we're a church that has abandoned the word. The others are true also. And, and you know, to me, like, and when my students would ask me, like, you know, how big is too big for a church? And my answer would be, it's not a number. A church is too big when, when we no longer feel like a body. You know, I went to a church on the mainland and my friend ran a um, church for homeless people. And so I remember we, our, our, a group from our church went to that, you know, to, to, to his homeless ministry. And he said, oh, last week there were two groups from your church that came at the same time and they didn't know they were both coming. And he said, I had to introduce them to each other because they didn't even know each other. And I'm like, how can we call ourselves a church if we don't know each other? But let me tell you something, that's not a plague just for big churches. It's a plague for small churches too. If we're a church, we're a community, we're a body, we're connected. When one grieves, we all grieve. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 doesn't say when one grieves, some of us grieve. We all grieve together. When one of us rejoices, we all rejoice together. And the only way we can grieve and rejoice together is that we know one another. A church is too big when we stop knowing one another. And, you know, some churches kind of create the, the, the what is the, the kind of modification, you know, they, 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 they try to compromise this. You know, they, they say, well, you know, it, it's impossible for me to know everybody, so as long as I know a group and this, you know, other people know a group, as long as we have, we, ha we know some people in the church. Well, that's great. If you want to write your own Bible and you want to come up with your you know, your own definitions of church, fine. But the Bible I read says we are all members of one, one with another. That we all are united. It doesn't mean we'll relate to everybody in the same way. We won't. But understand that if we're a church, we are a community. In fact, you might even say, you know, could we define church in some ways as being a community of, of disciple makers, a community of people being discipled and discipling others? Church is Christians coming together and living out the gospel, united in love. Love that only comes from the Spirit. I, I 
have you know, been around for a little more than half a century. And when I think about what are the great threats that I see to the church, it's not what I see a lot of times people thinking. Some people think like the great threat to the church is, is like the contemporization of the church. And it's like, no, that's not the great threat to the church. That's been happening for 2,000 years. If that's the great threat to the church, the church would be done. You know, I've said this before, if we, if we, if we don't want any contemporization, well, let's make sure next week, you know, everybody comes wearing first century Roman Palestinian garb. We're gonna conduct the entire service in Greek. Um, we won't be here, we'll be at someone's house. Everybody's like, yeah, but that's silly. Is it? When did all these traditions start that we embrace now? They came in through contemporization. No, the great threats to the church, compromising the word of God, compromising the love of God. To be his church, we must know his word, but we must know his word in such a way that it transforms our lives. It transforms us more and more into the image of Jesus. It transforms us to be able to love as only God can love. When we talk about gospel sharing, what are we talking about? We're talking about sharing the gospel, of course, but it's also, you might go, well, I'm not ready. I don't really understand the gospel. But here's what you can do. You can share what you know. Share what you know. If all you know is that at one time I was lost in my sin, at one time I was overwhelmed with my guilt, and through faith in Jesus Christ, I feel that I've been forgiven. I know that I've been forgiven. I know I have new purpose in life. I know the presence of the Spirit in my life. If that's all you know, just say that. And just remember, just remember, you're not alone. Somebody says, well, how do you know? Explain this to me. Maybe they're smarter than you. Maybe they know the Bible more than you. And they're challenging you. You're not alone. You have other brothers and sisters here in the church that will walk with you. You have pastors that would, you know, my first choice would be, let me tell you how to answer them. You go back. But my second choice would be, I'd love to talk with them. I'd love to talk with them. We share what we know. The big danger is when we start to share what we don't know. Don't do that. That's when people start making up new, new faith, new doctrine. But you can share what you know. And we can look to see how we do this together as a church. That to me is what it means to be his church. It's what a successful ministry is. We need to do all three of these things. Some people just want to leave the word behind and say, well, let's just live. Let's just get along. Let's just love each other and take care of one another. 
Other people want to be so word-focused that there's, there's no grace, there's no forgiveness, there's just word. It doesn't result in love and community. And others are really good at the word and the community thing, but it's just for themselves and they, they never reach out. We need to be all of these things. To weaken any one of those three weakens the others. The second thing we see is that Paul doesn't just spend time reasoning. He doesn't just spend time, but then we see the response. In verse 4, some of them were persuaded. And they're talking about the Jewish people there. Some of the Jewish people who were at the synagogue were persuaded. And then a whole lot of the Gentiles, men and women. And this is what we see that no matter how hard it is, no matter where Paul goes, God uses him just like he has already and he continues to use his church to lead people to Jesus, to lead people to his transforming power. Make no mistake, there are no guarantees of conversions. If you share the gospel perfectly, it doesn't mean that that person is gonna respond. But I want us to understand that, and we're going to hit this point more in a second, but the call is to be faithful to share. And even though conversions are not guaranteed, people receiving Christ are not guaranteed, it almost seems inevitable that if a church is, is, is knowing and living and sharing God's word, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I told you to, to, if you wanted to see, you know, an example of, of Christians who really get that perseverance to look at William Carey, you know, the, the Baptist missionary from about, you know, two or three hundred years ago. He went to India. The whole story about how he gets to India. But he goes to India. And he's in India for seven years, and he has zero converts. Most of us would have left after seven days. Most of us certainly would have left after seven months. Seven years he stays there. There's no guarantee that there would be conversions. All he knew was, that's what God called me to do. I'm going to be faithful to do it. His whole life of even getting to India, that, that whole life that brought him to that very point is a, is a story of someone who's relentlessly faithful, not looking at the results. His own fellow pastors thought he wasn't worth it, wasn't good enough. And they were probably right. You know, the historical accounts talk about he wasn't that, that, he wasn't that smart a guy, although he ends up learning all these languages. But in their estimation, he didn't have the training, he didn't have the background. He didn't really understand scripture. Because if he understood scripture, then he would know what they knew. And what they knew was this. If God wants to save people in India, he'll do it without our help. 
but he's relentlessly faithful. We might not ever know, we might not ever know in this life what our faithfulness has done in other people's lives. Sometimes all we are is just seed planters. Sometimes people need 37 different people to talk to them, to share with them, to show them what true Christianity is. And maybe you're number 17. Are you willing to be number 17? Or you're like, if I don't get to be the one that helps that person pray to receive Christ, I really don't want to do it. We need to understand that we're not simply trying to argue someone into, into faith. As someone has said smarter than me, if somebody can argue you into faith, they can argue you out of it. We're trying to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ because what the Bible tells us is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will make us new. Share the gospel. And we're doing this not just to get people to pray a prayer so we can you know, check off all the different people that we've shared the gospel with. No. We see Paul, like for three days he's there. We saw, you know, in other places, he stayed for months. It's about helping them be disciples. It's not just sharing the gospel and running. It's to help them become disciples in the community of faith. And the last point we get, we actually get it from the, the people that are against the Christians. So we see that some of the Jewish people accepted and some of the Jewish people were upset. And so they got some of the Gentiles and they say, hey, you know, let's cause this riot and go after these guys. And they can't find Paul and Silas, but they, they bring Jason and some of the other Christians before the city authorities and their accusation is these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And then later on it, talk, it says, says, talks about Jason but then it says they've also said that there's another king and his name is Jesus. By the way, both of those things are true. But they don't understand that. They're, they're very right in what they're saying. Christianity in a very short amount of time had confronted the world without confronting it. You don't read in the first century about Christian um, you know, lobbyists getting together. You don't find them forming militias. You don't find you know, Christian protests in the streets. You didn't, you didn't see any of that. They confronted the world simply by knowing the word, living the word, sharing the gospel. They were just people loving one another and that was a threat to the world. It's funny. Not a good thing. It's funny in a weird, strange way. 
So much so that these, these people don't know the truth of what they're saying. They don't know the truth that, that what they're, you know, where it says the world's turned upside down. It doesn't literally say that. It really says something like these men are standing against the Roman Empire. They're being accused of like trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. But what they're right about, even though they don't realize it, is that everything the Roman Empire is built upon, everything the Roman Empire values, and really what just about any empire values, Christianity was the polar opposite. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the most powerful being, God himself, who had the power to speak things into existence, speak them out of existence. Who, as the Gospels tells us, that all the time he's being beaten and mocked and hung on a cross, he could call 10,000 angels at any moment. He doesn't use any of that power. He doesn't say what is true, I'm more powerful than all of you. Instead, he loves and he dies. From the cross, he doesn't, he doesn't do what you know, many people would do and you know, either shout defiance at everybody or you know, say, you know, I'm sorry. He forgives while they're killing him. He forgives his enemies. Who does this? Who can do this? And when you see more and more people adopting this mentality, this attitude that's so different from the world, yes, it is a threat. And the, the big thing that we see here about this successful church is knowing that when we faithfully preach, when we faithfully live, that that confronts the entire world. But it confronts the world without being confrontational. And by that, I just mean the attitude of confrontation. You can't help but confront the world. We live in it. But what we cannot forget is that what Jesus came to do is he didn't just come to, to pick individuals and make sure they ended up in heaven. Jesus came to demonstrate, to show, to make possible, to inaugurate an entirely different way of how we would live together. That we will never experience on, on this side of heaven. But it is the only hope for the world. As I've said before, if, if the world only knows one way, and that way only ends in one of two ways, it, it either ends in, in powerful people dominating less powerful people, or it ends in anarchy, the atomization of humanity. But the gospel says, no, there's another way. But that way is impossible. You cannot do it. Unless 
through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been made new. That's the hope. That's the gospel. When the world is confronted by that, the world has to decide. The world sees that truth. When you love each other, that you really have no earthly business loving each other. When, when, when you love your enemies, it takes away the excuses the world has. They can't say it's not, it's, it, you know, this can't be done. They see the evidence. And all of us know that it's not because of my goodness or your goodness or some you know, spark of love in me that you know, somehow blossoms because of you know, Jesus. No. I know it's because I've been made new. And I try not to think about what the past 58 years would have been like had I not been made new. It's not because of me, it's because of Christ in me. It's not because of you, it's because of Christ in you. It's not because of us, it's because of Christ in us. That's what we can bring to people, but they have to see the love. They have to see our devotion to his word. Success, sometimes success brings conversion Understand, success is, is founded in faithfulness. Faithfulness to God's word. Faith, faithfulness to living it. Faithfulness to sharing it. 